electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Looking for direction, stocks eking out again after a seesaw day today. The Nasdaq now up seven days in a row, its best run since January. But can the recent momentum drive markets even higher to year end? We are breaking out the charts to find out if this is a rally we should run with. Plus, emerging opportunities. Overseas markets have been lagging the S&P so far this year. But could they be ready to play catch up? Pack your bags for globetrotting with a Latin flair. And later, nuclear gains. Uranium prices are at 15-year highs, but one of our traders says they can still double from here. What it means for your investments in the entire energy space. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Kim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Katie Stockton, founder and managing partner at Fairlead Strategies. We start off with stocks flying their way back into the green to kick off the week. The Dow adding 34 points. The S&P up two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq leading today's gains up nearly 0.4 percent. Uh, the gains muted, though, compared to last week's super strong rally. Still, the S&P is now up more than 6 percent from its recent lows and closed above its 50-day moving average for the second day in a row. Now, a wise woman once said... Mm. Oh, it, the wise woman is Katie Stockton. That nothing is worse than a false breakout, but nothing is better than a false breakdown. So, Katie, which side of the coin do you land on, given the run we've seen recently? You know, last week was really pivotal for the market. We were all talking about that 4,200 level for the S&P 500. It came down below. We were actually watching 4,180. And it didn't confirm. So it needed to spend two weeks below in our work to confirm that breakdown. And it's a really important qualifier because it suggests that it's more than just this emotionally charged move. And I think we can all agree that emotions were running very high last week, the week before. So we have this sort of false breakout, which we also call a shakeout. It shakes out the weak holders of the market. And it tends to be a very bullish development, at least short term. So we feel fairly convinced of the rally's strength. It did associate with some MACD buy signals. That means short-term momentum has improved enough to actually manifest itself in the indicators. And I think it sets us up nicely for year end. But we still have the jury out on whether that can be lasting. So beyond year end, do we have the potential for this follow-through? And that's still a question mark in our work. We have the improved short-term gauges, not the improved long-term gauges. We think that that's going to require a breakout. And I think we have a chart above resistance around 4,600. So that resistance level has been tested three times unsuccessfully. Above that, that's where things I think would start to really look better on the monthly charts, the monthly bar charts, which we use for that long-term analysis. What do you think, Tim? Well, if, if I think about the most important ingredients last week for the equity rally, at least those that were driving rates down, we had three things, right? We had the, the auction announcement and the size of long-term treasury issuance. We had a Fed meeting and we had Fed commentary. And then we had a payroll number and a, a weak payroll number and a weak ISM. Of those three things, I actually think that the refunding announcement and just the technical elements of what was being issued or not issued was the most important ingredient in getting hedge funds who had record shorts going into this week on treasuries in terms on rates um, to quickly re- 
reverse course and scramble. and, And of all those three things, that's the one thing that actually doesn't really change, right? We still have a lot of debt to issuance. And if anything, I think it gets worse. I think it gets worse as the deficit gets farther out of control. So do I think that rates could come cascading lower? I don't really. But I do think that last week's rally, for some of the technical reasons Katie's talking about, also just in terms of uh, the breadth that we saw during the up days. The breadth that we saw during the up days was really impressive to me. Yeah. It wasn't being led by Qs. It wasn't be- triple Qs. It wasn't being led by the NASDAQ 100. Um, I think that was very significant. A lot of this is what we have seen at other times, including maybe even a year ago in October or kind of this year. You get these moments off of such oversold levels and such positioning that was so negative. I don't think anything really changed. And I know we're going to talk about uh, elements around earnings and what, what's happened here, but it's not like this earnings season has been that great. Now, Bank of America's technician was pointing out the breadth thrust that we saw last week. So the broadening of this rally, regionals were up really big. Arc Innovation, that sort of trade, the growth risk trade, that was all up very strongly. Last week, yes, changed a little bit today, but all good. I mean, and I think Katie would agree with this. The downtrend in the S&P since July is still intact. I mean, the level we traded up to basically takes us to the downtrend line. Carter Worth has pointed that as well. So I guess through 4,400, maybe it's a different conversation. The uptrend that yields are in is still intact. The level we traded down to on Friday was basically the third point of an uptrend in yields. So Tim brings up an excellent point. Ten-year yields moved 10 basis points higher today. So I agree. I don't think the yield story is over. I think positioning was exactly right. I misunderstood or didn't realize the scope of how short people were. But it doesn't mean they're not right. They just weren't right for that period of time. If yields continue, I still think yields are an uptrend. If yields continue to go higher, the market's going to have a difficult time. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I mean, so if you're buying equities because, you know, the 10 year went from 5 percent down to four and a half percent or so, I think you want to focus on those two components that Tim just mentioned, that cool jobs data coupled with the ISM data early. I mean, so if the economy is doing what the Fed had kind of hoped to so they could stop raising interest rates, I just don't see that as a great spot right now where S&P expectations for earnings are in 2024. So we haven't really seen the cuts come down yet. And yes, I definitely think we talked about it on the desk last week. You know, earnings season took a little bit of a different stance towards the end of it. You know, it didn't start out particularly great. You remember that gap that Netflix had, right? And then there was a whole host of other ones that kind of followed suit there a little bit. So to me, I just think that if you're excited why yields came in and that's why you're going to buy equities, other than from what seemed to be like very poor sentiment in, in the setup into it. I think the technicals, and I think this is the expression you use, Katie, the jury's still out here because to Guy's point, the downtrends are still intact. I look at the S&P 500 and I look at that consolidation at 4,400 that we broke down from on the way down to 4,200. That to me looks like resistance. If I look at what the Russell, you know, it's got, it's got resistance and it's still well off its highs. The equal weight S&P is not particularly great to me. So the NDX stopped today right at that downtrend that had been. So to me, I think a lot of stuff has to happen, um, you know, other than technical to confirm that this is something that you want to buy. Not, it can't just be that rates came in, uh, you know, 50 bips. What do you see for rates and what do you see for the groups that gained the most last week? Small caps, for instance, regionals, et cetera. You know, I agree with the point on breath. It was very strong. And I think that's a requirement for the market in order to sustain this advance. It needed to come off those oversold breath readings and it did that. And now it needs to sustain that. I think the impetus for sustaining that would be yields coming off uh, for a long time, right? And we have our first indication this month that yields may actually do that for about 9 to 12 months. It's from the DeMarc indicators looking at TLT 
and TLT has the first counter-trend buy signal. I'm not saying buy TLT necessarily, but it's the first counter-trend buy signal per this model since a sell signal the month of April 2020. So I'm intrigued by that signal as suggesting that yields may be in store for what would be a counter-trend move for something closer to 9 to 12 months as opposed to maybe 9 to 12 weeks like our other indicators are suggesting. So if that signal holds any value, then we feel like we could have something that could actually help the S&P 500 not only get through 4,400 as initial resistance, really just a minor level, but that 4,600 major level. Well, and, and so that's interesting. So she's saying 9 to 12 weeks versus 9 to 12 months. And if you think yeah, about last October's move, this was a 9 to 12 month move. I mean, let's be clear. It went really through the end of July at a minimum. Um, and, and I guess I don't know if we have this chart, but we talk about the breadth and we talk about equal weighted versus uh, versus market cap weighted S&P. But that's as simple as doing a ratio between the the RSP ETF divided by the SPY. And you can see if you there it is. If you look at this five year chart, it's actually a 10 year chart. You can see we're we're kind of right up at the bottom of this extreme level of support where you've absolutely you've wicked underperformed. You've underperformed by 13 percent on equal weighted S&P uh, from kind of mid to late January of this year through to those lows. But those are the same lows that we got through and were a, you know, essentially a holding point of extreme oversold and relative underperformance that we got to back in COVID. So I don't know whether that's where we are, um, but I do think it is a place where it's very clear. And the other side of that is what I, I have talked about a lot, which I, it's, it's oversold simplifying it. But until the Nasdaq 100 really starts to underperform the S&P or that semis start to really underperform the Nasdaq 100, I think this market's not getting too far out of its way because that's where the leadership is. And so we haven't seen those breakdowns. There's an argument we haven't made new relative highs. We've kind of held serve for the last few months right in there. And until we don't, I think you can actually stay along the market. Katie's argument, though, is that for the next nine to 12 months, if rates stay sort of in check, the assumption is that that's good for the markets. Carter Braxton Worth has been on the show saying he thinks rates are going to come down and stocks will go down. He doesn't necessarily think that lower rates is going to be a tailwind for stocks. Yeah, Carter talks about through four and a half, I think, on the downside, suggests that something is breaking and that the rates are going lower in some sort of flight to quality, which means maybe the stock market has been breaking down or will start to. I happen to agree with that. In terms of Katie's work on TLT, we talked about it last Monday. We pointed it out when you were back. We said, Monday, I said, Tim, who was hosting? You said, I don't remember what yesterday. It was Courtney. It was Courtney. And you remembered and you weren't even here. By the way, it's nothing to do with Courtney. I just don't remember what no, I had no, for of breakfast. Course not. I mean, that's yeah, not no, fair. No, so you can't again, do that not me. an indictment of I mean, Courtney at all. Yeah, yeah. But we had talked about it on that Monday show that when I think TLT closed at 83, we said 88 and a half is a level where it's going to bounce. So I think it got to 8910-ish or so Thursday and Friday. That seems to be enough for me. And if rates, again, start to go back up, that headwind will be back for equities, I think. Yeah, just going back to earnings expectations, right? Because that's the thing. If you go back to October of 2022, expectations were so high for a recession and they were just so low for everything. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, it was, okay, I, I probably got it wrong down then. You know what I mean? Like, but the fact that we rallied the way we did, despite the fact that we haven't seen major earnings revisions, I think for next year, we're expected, you know, 12, 13% earnings growth, just go back to the data that we're seeing right now. Um, and so even if the Fed doesn't have to cut anytime soon, you know what I mean? We're going to have a weaker economy, whether we have a recession or not. I mean, Paul Tudor Jones was saying it on CNBC's air, what, a month ago that he expects the economy to be in a recession in Q1. It's just not a good time to actually chase stocks after a 6.5% rally in the S&P or an 8% rally in the X, uh, NDX when you know that there are earnings revisions coming. 
Um, let's move on here. We've got an earnings alert here on NXP Semiconductor. The chip stock is volatile after giving better than expected guidance. Christina Parks Nevelis joins us with all the details. Hey, Christina. Hi. Well, NXP is giving back some of its earlier gains. The report not a blowout, but posting a little higher than estimates. Investors were pretty cautious going into this name, given the weakness we saw from peers like analog chipmaker Texas Instruments or auto supplier on Semiconductor. That stock dropped 22% post-earnings. But the auto chip sector has remained pretty resilient compared to other sectors, even post-COVID. But the rollover is starting to happen right now. Luckily, though, for an XP Semi, 50% of its revenues come from auto, but it's not as reliant on electric vehicles. So for the third quarter, what did we see? We saw auto sales that came in line. Industrial and IoT were weaker, were, yes, weaker among peers, but for NXP, it was an actual beat. And then you can see communication infrastructure was the miss. But full-year revenue guidance is expected to be flat year-over-year given the, quote, challenging and cyclical environment. The earnings call, though, is tomorrow morning. Two things to look out for is NXP is if it's going to still undership demand to control channel inventories and how strong that auto demand actually is, given the warning signs from peers. Guys? All right, Christina, thanks. Christina Parts Nevelis, as she mentioned, guidance pretty much within the range Mm -hmm. of what analysts have been expecting, so nothing surprising uh, there at all. And the conference call, of course, could have tape bombs. Who knows? 100%. But October, so last year, this was $135 stock. Since then, a series of higher lows and higher highs. That's the good news. Valuation, I don't think, is unreasonable for this name. Probably trades mid-teens or a little lower than that in terms of forward earnings. So given these levels, I mean, if technically you want to play the game, I mean, this is a stock you could probably buy against $180 or so. How's it look, Katie? Yeah, I, I mean, it looks like it's actually bit up a little bit in response, at least at this point. So to me, it's reacting to an intermediate term oversold condition within a gradual uptrend. And that's almost always a compelling setup from a technical perspective, at least for the next few weeks. And then when you look at the next resistance levels here, we're talking about sort of the low to mid 190s. So that's also compelling to me. And, and that's the case for a lot of stocks. We do, of course, tend to see the sector exhibit upside leadership in a stronger tape. So if you believe that there can be more of a relief rally, I think this is a fair way to play it. And speaking of the fundamentals here, if you if you think about hearing about resilience in auto or industrial, it's really important right now because, again, I, you know, we're, Dan's talking about earnings and EPS. And I, I kind of I agree, like all the stuff that I'm reading from analysts that are coming through right now through their sectors where they're summing up what's going on. I was reading a leading analyst on the street who covers the transports and the rails and said he looks at the erosion, not only in EBIT and, and, and EPS, but margin erosion of 460 basis points in this third quarter is the worst that they've seen in 20 years in terms of in their models. So you know, you have this dynamic, go back to industrials, go back to auto. Um, these stocks trade as if they've been in a bear market for a long time. Most of them, a lot of them. And even the ones that were doing better, like a Caterpillar, had a rough week last week. So important stuff to watch. This is one of the worst acting semiconductor stocks that were like, other than like Texas Instruments, which has a lot of that industrial exposure, right? Down in the year, Qualcomm and auto. And so when I look at this, I think you, you said it. There, there's likely to be tape bombs on this thing. This thing acts this way for a reason, in my opinion. I think it is a value trap. And, and and again, you know, it's expected to grow, let's say, high single digits earnings, mid single digits um, sales, and it's trading about 13 times. Well, there's a reason. You know, the SMH is at, what, 40% on the year or, 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 or more, 46. right? And so, um, and it had this AI ramp, which it doesn't have a lot of exposure. And then if you think about what Apple had to say, 8, eight 9% of their sales comes from Apple. So this is not one I'd be stepping in front of that uh, conference call. I'd also be curious to see what they say about China. They have exposure to China. They're not a U.S. chip company, so they have that going for it in terms of not facing sort of the backlash there. 
But could this now be something that works against them? I think we'll probably get some details tomorrow. So I like the fact that you said tape bomb. That's old Why? school. No, it's old school, sort of fast money stuff. I guess so. Tape. I mean, imagine like looking at a tape and sort of boom. <laughs> Just like that guy. That's exactly well, that's what he's saying. Okay, you know what? Is that going to be on a Monday? Is yeah, that how we're starting the week? Like, it's not been a great day for Mets right. fans. No, it has uh, not, actually. Good up. hire, Tim. <laughs> Is the housing trade about to heat up? Mortgage rates dropping sharply over the past week. So what's it mean for home prices? The open house trade is next, plus a potential game changer in the pharma space. Could Vertex's new pain medication be a breakthrough for the industry? How it could shake up the entire space when Fast Money returns? CEOs are in the business of making decisions, and it's the outcome of those decisions that define their success. Hi, I'm Sam Reese, CEO of Vistage. For more than 65 years, we've engaged with more than 100,000 executives on this twisting leadership journey that we call a life of climb. Join me on a life of climb podcast to hear firsthand stories from CEOs about the challenges they've overcome and the lessons they've learned along the way. Listen to a life of climb wherever you get your podcasts or at vistage.com slash podcast. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Mortgage rates dropped sharply last week after the Fed pause and cooler-than-expected jobs report. The 30-year fixed rate falling 50 basis points, its biggest plunge since last November. So is this giving the all-clear for the housing market? CNBC's Diana Olick has more. Diana, I bet people are jumping in. Yeah, well, probably not exactly, because although, Melissa, it was an epic drop, but we gave a little back today. So, all right, where are we? Look, the 30-year fix started on Monday of last week at 7.92% and took three major plunges, starting Wednesday with the Fed pause and ending Friday with the lower-than-expected jobs report. It totaled more than a half of a percentage point drop in just one week, and that very rarely happens. Now, of course, the builder stocks just love that. You can see the home construction ETF shot up, but then rates moved 10 basis points higher today, which the ITB did not love. Now, to put the drop in housing perspective, though. If you're buying a $400,000 home with 20% down on a 30-year fixed mortgage, your monthly payment on Friday was $119 lower than it was last Monday. Five days difference, $119. So what does that mean for the fall housing market? Well, it could help on the edges, maybe, but we've still got sky-high home prices. The last time affordability was this bad was in the 1980s when rates were in the double digits, but the average home cost about three and a half times the median income. Today, that average home costs six times, six times the median income. And home prices, Melissa, they just continue to go up. All right. This could possibly be something good for the home builders who have been buying down the mortgages, though, Diana, right? At least in the very, very short term. 
Yeah, I mean, it could help. They've been buying, though, into the kind of five and a half percent range. Yeah. So we're going to need to see it get a bit lower and then that jump up today. We're still in the sevens solidly. If we could get into the sixes, that might help a bit. But I think you need to see another big leg lower for that to help the builders. All right. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick uh, for the latest on housing. What do you think of this? I mean, the- I was joking when I said they're no, jumping no, no, in I, because it's not it's not a real big dent immediately for the for you to say, OK, now rates are lower. I'm going to go buy a house. So the supply demand imbalances that we've talked about, yeah. from, they haven't gone away. Number one, what changed, I think, over the summer into September was there was this line of demarcation in terms of 10 year yields. I think four and a half percent is when everything sort of changed. And if you look, the XHB, which I don't think it's the greatest ETF, but it's also four percent DR Horton, Lennar, Toll Brothers, a number of stocks. That rolled over in a major way. We traded down to 69 or so late October. Then you had this 10% bounce on the back of yields. 77 and a half-ish was a level that we topped out at in early October. We stopped exactly where we should have. Rates stopped where they should have on the downside. XHB on the upside, I think they roll over from here. Katie, what do you see in the charts? You know, same thing. It's an oversold upturn for the home builders and their ETFs in long-term uptrends. So the corrective phases were very severe and sort of persistent. And they they just reversed very quickly. And I think for now, we can trust that there's room for upside follow-through near term. And you can actually look at the mortgage rates from a technical perspective and see that they've lost some upside momentum. Anybody can see it, but not enough to suggest it's meaningful. So we can throw something like a 20-day moving average on a chart and use that as a gauge of short-term momentum. The 20-day hasn't even rolled over with what we saw in the past week or so on the 30-year mortgage rate. So I think we need to see more in terms of loss of momentum to be something that would be sustainable. Could you cue those two opening phrases of a false break down versus because, I mean, to this I mean, this is the whole story to me. That move in housing to me is the one where that's a false breakup. I mean, you know, just because we've gone by the way, we've gone back to levels that we were kind of at the peak of this market. If you look at that, either ETF you want. And, and that is this is not a moment to be buying housing. I, I mean, th- this is clearly my view, but it feels like it's the right time for uh, what you were saying about false breakouts, because I, I think you are selling this move in housing so fast. I don't care that there's no supply. Uh, I, again, I'm going to get back to you can't tell me housing prices are going higher when credit is getting higher. We haven't even got there. People are not haven't even lost their jobs yet. Right. Uh, and there's no house. There's no velocity in the housing market to have these sales coming off of the period where houses had their greatest period of pricing because of covid housing markets aren't going higher. Yeah, the only thing I was going to say, and you alluded to it, if, if you think unemployment is going above 4%, um, then housing demand is not going up. I mean, just not, especially with affordability and, and rates that are not going to plunge, you know, to any of these points. So to me, that's what you got to track here, and it doesn't look like it's something you want to chase right here. I mean, the average house is six times the median income. Good luck. That's nuts, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not laughing. I am laughing. I'm not laughing. It's not funny. No. And rents are through the roof. Right. By the way, we were kids, Tim and I, but Clearasil was a big, remember the whole clear? Sure. Well, yeah, great, no, but I'm just saying. talking about people that had No, 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 because know, Katie's, Katie's oh. the way we start. Oh. Nothing is worse, worse than a false breakout, but at Clearasil, <laughs> we can help you if it's a real one. That would be fantastic. I mean, Katie could be the I, spokesperson. It would be fantastic. <laughs> They're watching right now, the Clearasil people. Were you people. a regular consumer growing up? No, yeah. Tim, actually, I'm not. Anyway, My skin is pristine. No, I, I can tell you, you do scrubs. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A potential game changer in the drug space. One stock jumping as its new pain medication nears a breakthrough. Could this be the next big catalyst for the healthcare space? 
Plus, heavy metal trading, uranium near 15-year highs. But can the power source keep rocking? Why Wall Street is going nuclear on this one. Ahead, you're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Vertex Pharmaceutical shares uh, topping the tape en route to a record high today. The company releasing updates on a program aimed at developing a non-habit-forming pain drug that could replace opioids. If successful, the drug could generate more than $5 billion per year by 2030, according to Learink estimates. Shares, though, are giving back some of the gains after posting lower-than-expected revenues after the bell. Our Angelica Peebles joins us now for a closer look at the details of the new drug. Angelica, this seems like the holy grail. I mean, one analyst I was reading is sort of making the comparison to GLP-1s and that it's, it's in an area that people sort of wrote off because there were so many just misfires in terms of drugs that had terrible side effects but it could really be a huge market if there was a breakthrough here. Yeah, everyone wants a pain medicine that is not addictive. Of course, we've seen how terrible the opioid crisis has been. And the problem is that those drugs still remain some of the best options we have for pain treatment. And so people are excited about Vertex's medicine, VX548, and it's in phase three trials for acute pain. And now that is a pain that's a little bit stronger than a headache, something more like after you get your wisdom teeth removed or get some sort of surgery, like a tummy tuck is one of the things that they're studying for. And so the hope is that that will give you the pain relief without that addiction risk. But it's still early days here, even if they do get the acute pain um, approved, that then they're moving to neuropathic pain, so pain in the nerves. And then the ultimate goal would be chronic pain, but that's going to take a lot longer. So the acute pain, and I'm glad you mentioned the tummy tuck, they also studied in bunion surgery, as I understand it. Um, is that the smaller market? And so the, to get to that $5 billion path, you have to have it approved for chronic. Well, acute pain is the first, um, the first mm -hmm. indication they're going after. And that alone could be a multi-billion dollar market. The last figure I saw from Vertex was about $4 billion. That was last year. And tonight they're saying that um, that market alone is about 80 million people a year in the U.S. So that's still a pretty big market. But the global opioid market right now is about $22 billion. And that's factoring in um, the fact that these drugs are really cheap generic drugs. And so Vertex, if they do come out with something new, they're obviously going to price it a lot higher than what we've seen so far. So it's a really big opportunity. And even just getting a little slice of it could mean big revenue numbers for them. There seems to be some controversy, though, about how some of the studies were conducted, Angelica, to the point where people are questioning whether or not the FDA will actually go ahead and approve it. And, and I think that investors sort of have this muscle memory back to when Biogen had all this, you know, positive data regarding their Alzheimer's drug, only to have questions raised about how those studies were conducted as well. And then we saw the stock plummet. Yeah, and it's interesting. It came up on the earnings call tonight and the CEO saying that, 
you know, that they're still confident in their plan here and in the phase three trials that they're conducting. There's three going on right now um, that they'll have data on um, early next year. They're saying that the goal of these trials is to actually look at how um, their drug, VX548, compares to opioids. And so they'll have some more definitive data here on how those two compare. All right. Angelica, thank you for joining us. Good to see you. Angelica Peebles with the latest on Vertex. Again, a gainer in uh, the regular session, giving that up in the after-hour session, Guy. Well, if you look, I mean, the move has been pretty orderly until recently, and then you had this parabolic move over the last couple of weeks. I guess that's the good news and the bad news. Good news is valuation, I think, is still okay here. This looks a lot like Eli Lilly. You have a series of lower, high, higher lows, higher lows and higher highs. You've had pullbacks along the way, but you can actually wrap your head around this in terms of valuation and the story. You don't have to run from it. You're getting the pullback now. I think if it gets to 350, you buy with both hands. Interesting you mentioned Eli Lilly, the producer of a semaglutide drug, which has transformed its business as well as the industry in terms of the stock comparison. Mm -hmm. Do you also see that sort of constructive stock You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I looked at Eli Lilly earlier today and it actually has a sell signal. So it's sort of like an overbought indication on the chart that's intermediate term in nature. And looking at Vertex, it's really has no sell signal. So you wonder perhaps if there might be some rotation even of people that kind of play that space. There's nothing bearish about new highs, is what I also say. Um, so new highs from Vertex, even you know, with the, the subsequent pullback, are compelling to me, especially with no sell signals. Yeah, I mean, no pain, no gain here. In other words, without this uh, acute pain market and the size of this, by the way, that's, that's the title of... Okay. Uh, Leering Swan. Hold on. I think it's BMO. It's, it's, it's an analyst... It's an analyst report on the stock. But the point is that the size of this addressable market is something that's so interesting why they're overshooting. By the way, this sounds a lot like the addressable market for cannabis. I'm just saying. I mean, this is someone that's been in that industry. Acute pain is what really the medicinal uses all talked about. Um, And I think there's obviously a lot of different uh, ways people are addressing this. But the valuation here is something that can be overshot. Coming up, some nuclear trading, uranium trading near 15-year high. So can the heavy metal trade keep strumming along and how Wall Street is getting in? Plus, emerging markets continuing to rebound in November. But where exactly should you be in the overseas trade? We're going global, finding the best opportunity for your portfolio. Details when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Closing in the green to start the week, the Dow and S&P with modest gains in the Nasdaq notching a seven-day winning streak, its best run since January. Shares of Paramount, though, sinking nearly 8% today after a double downgrade at Bank of America. Analysts there slashing their price target to $9, down from 32 That's another 30% downside from today's close. Dish Network stock also plummeting down more than 37%, its largest drop ever. After the media company posted a major earnings and revenue miss this morning, Dish also reported steeper customer losses. And some more after-hours action, TripAdvisor soaring after its earnings report, the company posting a beat on the top and the bottom lines. Meantime, uranium price is trading around 15-year highs, and the Sprott Uranium Miners ETF is benefiting from the bullish move. The ETF up more than 41% over the past six months. John Champaglia is the CEO of Sprott Asset Management. He believes uranium prices will triple. What time frame are you talking about, John? Triple. Well, that's a bit, that's a big call. I don't know about triple, but um, we've clearly gone up about uh, 150% in the last two years, and we think there's more room to go. 
And the reason for that is, is quite simple. We have a, a major supply deficit that is building over the next coming, not just few years, but decades. And that's really a function of having a lost decade where we did not invest in this technology. As a result, we did not invest in a lot of mining, which which obviously is, is part of the a key part of the story in terms of the, the fuel for the nuclear power uh, fleet that is growing around the world. And at the end of the day, the only way to increase production is through higher prices because these are capital intensive projects with very long lead times. Uh, and that capital is starting to come back into the market. So we pay very close attention to the, the commodity price because that's the key signal that we look for. Hey, John, it's Tim. Uh, thanks for joining us. I, I share bullishness. I'm long, I'm long the space. Uh, I do think prices are going to double from here. And part of my thesis is related to I, I think there are people that are short in the market. I think there, uh, I think there are both producers and some customers. Uh, any thoughts on some of the technical elements of this because of some of the lag times in the industry uh, and where, uh, frankly, a, a lack of a, a lot of liquidity in the spot markets has left us? I think, you know, we're as thin as we've been in 15 years. You heard this from Cameco. They didn't really they talk more about the fundamentals of the industry, but you get some sense that one or two of the major producers also may have some deficit. Yeah, it's a very uh, a vulnerable uh, supply chain, and it's because it's, it's very concentrated in a few countries and a few companies. Um, and the market right now is very tight. It's very tight in the spot market. But more importantly, the term market is what we, we look at very closely because that's where utilities are buying uranium under long term contractual arrangements. If you look at last year, for example, uh, utilities around the globe purchased through long-term contracts about 125 million pounds. That's great. That was the highest amount we had in 10 years. But we're nowhere near annual replacement rate, which basically means utilities continue to draw down inventories until they hit about 150 million pounds of annual procurement. This year, we think we're going to shoot through the 150, which is a very bullish sign. It means utilities are essentially restock restocking their their inventories of uranium why because they're feeling very bullish about electricity prices government support that's shifting back for nuclear power because of decarbonization energy security and also grid reliance a lot of people i think are going to start to understand that when you add a lot of renewables to your grid it becomes inherently unstable and so you need reliable baseload power which uh, nuclear power provides, and obviously with zero greenhouse gas emissions. So a very powerful combination that I think the market is realizing. If we want to uh, fill this supply deficit, as I said, it's, it really comes down to opening new mines, restarting previous mines that have been on care and maintenance for, for, for the greater part of the last five or six years. And building new mines is, is a pretty long, long uh, timetable in terms of bringing new production to market. Just to be clear, John, when you talk about deficit, you mean the current market, including Russian uranium? Because if the U.S. and Europe actually sanctioned Russian uranium, what would that then do to the market? And do you ever see that as a possibility as geopolitics you know, continue to, well, not get better? Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'll break that down in, the, in two parts. So right now, if you add up all of the mines around the world, we think we're going to get to about 150 million pounds of annual production in the next 12 months. The annual requirements for all the 434 reactors is 180 million pounds. So we're already operating with a with a 30 million uh, pound annual deficit. If you look at the World Nuclear Association, they're expecting the annual requirements in 2040 to be almost 300 million pounds per year. So we're talking about a serious increase in production. 
that that will have to be filled if we want to build all the nuclear capacity that the world endeavors to. With Russia specifically, they're not a big producer of uranium, but they're a key player in the fuel cycle, the nuclear fuel cycle, around the conversion of, of um, U-308 to UF-6, uh, which is basically a gasification process, and then the enrichment of uranium, where they control about 40% of the global capacity. This obviously has Western utilities and governments concerned. And right now there is a very strong effort to reshore some of these steps in the fuel cycle back to friendly countries. So you have, uh, you have facilities in the United States and, and France that right now are in the process of growing their capacity so that we're less reliant on Russia. There are absolutely no sanctions whatsoever on Russia on anything to do with uranium or nuclear fuel. And it's a simple reason that we do not have the capacity in the West to cut them off. It's a matter of time before sanctions come into place. The current bills floating around the House are envisioning 2028. But between now and then, we're still going to be relying on, in some part on Russia for, for the fuel cycle. John, thank you. Nice speaking with you. John Champaglia of Sprott. Um, and we're hearing all these announcements these days about uh, uranium enrichment in France, for instance. Orono is going to be a new facility in France. But there's still a lead time, as John had mentioned. You put the investment in and it doesn't come online for years. Well, in, in the reversal in Germany and Japan mm -hmm. and places, and, and, you know, Jennifer Granholm in this country has been, you know, a big advocate. And, and again, John pointed out, I mean, this is a dynamic. We talk all the time about the, the energy markets. We talk about oil and gas. We talk about supply dynamics. We talk about demand. It's a case where we're, we're definitely looking at a deficit. And we also have the World Nuclear Association that says we're going to double by 2040. And that's probably very conservative just based upon the pathway we're on. Um, so it, it's, a, again... The, the infrastructure required, the build-out time, the capex, the long tail here means I, I, think, I think this is going to squeeze very hard. UEC is a company that says a $2 billion market cap will do $100 million in revenue. So obviously, you know, price to revenue is ridiculous at these levels. And we're talking about a stock that's at a 13-year or so high. With that said, they also have $200 million on their balance sheet, no debt, and they're way ahead of the curve. To Tim's point, you have to believe in the fundamentals of these stories, and the fundamentals are not going away. So these stocks are volatile, but the fundamentals are in place for a long time. So you don't race out and buy this stock up, you know, almost 100% over the last month and a half, two months, but you look for a level to get back in for sure. Coming up, grab your passport. We are going international. Our opportunities emerging overseas. That trade and more when Fast Money returns. <coughs> news alert on the, what the Fed's next move might be. Minneapolis Fed leader Neil Kashkari uh, telling the Wall Street Journal he is not convinced that rate hikes are over. Kashkari is a voting member of the Fed this year, but will not be on next year. That's interesting. Well, it is interesting relative to what we think we heard yeah. and what, how equities reacted last week because that was pretty violent. Um, I'll just say this. My friend to my left um, does not. You, you agree? There's you, nobody to your left. Oh, guy. Yeah. You agree with Neil Kashkari, don't you? Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Let's just slow down for a second. In this very specific vertical that right. we just mentioned, yes, I agree. But you talk about somebody that's been, and he's welcome to come on the show. He's on the network Anytime. all the time. I mean, he was so off sides the last couple yeah. of years. I mean, at least he's starting to come, you know, have some religion in terms of what's going on. Better late than never, as they say. 
Let's move on here. Is it time to look at some emerging opportunities overseas? The EM emerging markets ETF already up nearly 6% to kick off November, beating the S&P. But not all emerging markets are created equally. Um, for this, we go to the ambassador mm. named for his uh, specialty in emerging markets. Tim, well, which ones do you like? Well, I, I, investing around China is something that clearly we, we talk about the, the challenges with investing in China. I, I'm, I still think Tencent and Alibaba are, are well worth holding in here. But uh, I look to LATAM and I look to places where I think that the weaker dollar, which I'm not telling you the dollar is going to go a lot lower. And I thought it was going to be under more pressure than it is. But the dollar over the last few days has certainly sniffed out. It closed below the 50. I, I think the Dixie uh, is a green light to emerging market investors as long as you don't have the complete falling apart of growth and which would then lead to credit dynamics. But if rates have peaked, the dollar is weakening. And then you look at this resource trade that I think still is proven very much alive. You look at the weightings within EM. Um, LATAM is probably somewhat under, uh, underweight in terms of its overall um, contribution. I actually think Brazil and Mexico are both very interesting. I think Petrobras, which I've owned through some really difficult times. I think this is a company that right now is run differently, has a huge dividend. And it's part of why I think EM can outperform here. Katie. Yeah, you know, we do have the dollar index below its 50-day moving average, so that reflects a, a significant loss of momentum there. And with that, we see relative strength start to perk up a little bit behind emerging markets. So we're looking at Brazil primarily, which is via the EWZ ETF. We like that setup. It's more of a long-term turnaround play reacting to oversold conditions. Uh, but we also like China. You know, the, the China Internet KWeb ETF has support right in line. So this is where these should rally. They should respond to oversold conditions. EWZ, downtrend since July. We've broken, held 30 a couple times. Resource uh, ETF. Yeah, I think you can buy this here at $30 on the downside. your risk. I think it goes higher. Coming up, the results of the latest Investopedia investor survey are out. Editor-in-chief Caleb Silver is here. We'll give us the first look into those numbers. And here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is chatting exclusively with the CEO of Carvana. The stock is up 600% this year. Wow. Catch full interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. The leaves are changing color, but are investors changing their tune on the market? Stocks may be running a hot streak lately, but recently uh, investors are convinced that the rally may not stick around. According to Investopedia's latest investor survey, Editor-in-Chief Caleb Silver is here on set with these results. Caleb, it's interesting because it seems like they're cautious. Yeah, they're still cautious, not entertained by the rally, not convinced it'll stick, and not really buying it. Not a lot of dip buying here, not a lot of people willing to get aggressive or even promiscuous when the opportunity presents itself, except if you gave them some extra money, which we'll get to in a minute, but still very back on their heels. They've been this way since we started talking about it in May. Why are they so gun-shy these days? Well, there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously. The war in the Middle East, the latest thing to make them uncertain. That is top of the list. Obviously, that wasn't on our list when we last spoke about seven weeks ago. That, of course, high interest rates, that's been on their mind. But remember when I was here last, we were, they were talking about the election, the 2024 election, the uncertainty, what might come from that. That was their number one fear. That's dropped way down. War in the Middle East, number one. But general uncertainty and not a lot of approval for what the Fed's been doing lately, which is also new to the survey. Uh, in terms of the extra $10,000 question, that's the question I love because it's so telling. And there's a real change. Last time you were here, I think you were saying CDs and money. People are playing it real safe. They wanted yield. Yeah. And now if you gave them extra money, they're saying stocks for the first time since before May. So that is new. 
People say one thing and do another. We see that all the time in every discipline. Investing is one of them. They say one thing, they do another. If you gave them the extra money, they'd put it into individual stocks right now. Maybe they think that this is the seasonality play. Maybe they think we've hit the terminal rate. Maybe they just think it's oversold and they're willing to start buying again. But they wouldn't do it with their existing money. If you dropped an extra 10 Gs, they're all over it. November reached a time of year where people were searching for different terminologies. What's on the top of the list this year? Yeah, we took a reader poll of our readers' favorite terms. We'll do our own terms of the year in a few weeks here. AI topped that list. The inverted yield curve, number two. A lot on treasury bonds, a lot on yields, a lot on what was happening in the capital markets. The list is fascinating. It goes super deep. The Minsky moment's on there at some point in time. We, of course, have racketeering, and that's a recurring theme on Investopedia, but also in the capital markets and in the legal world right now. So investors have been searching for a lot of stuff this year. It's been such a tricky year, and this is our latest list from them. Caleb, are, are investors worried about losing out on the yields? In other words, do they feel like they need to lock in on this? Most folks have seen this somewhat fleetingly. And this is like if you have money to put in the bank, locking in at 5% for long term is something you haven't seen in decades. Yes. Is that something? Is there anxiety around missing out on this? Not so much, but we know one of the top search terms in general all year long has been best CD rates. Yeah. How do I buy one? What do I do with my treasury bonds right, right now? So people are willing to lock in, sit on 5% until they get a better view of what might happen. There's just so many things that might happen. You get this feeling that people are just going to sit back. And the big difference, guys, is this lack of dip buying, just institutional dip buying, but also among institutional investors. These are very promiscuous investors that want to put money to work. They haven't felt like it's been the right time for a long time. With all that said, though, their favorite stocks for the next 10 years seem to still be Magnificent seven sort of stocks. Plus Berkshire Hathaway, plus ExxonMobil, JP Morgan's on there. But they're still willing to bet with the same players that got them through the last 10 years, the widely held, the biggest market cap stocks. They'll stick with what's comfortable, and those are kind of value trades for them. Caleb, do retail investors have any money left not to invest in those mag seven and all the things that everyone feels really comfortable about long term? When you think about just the last four years and you think about all the speculation in SPAC and unprofitable tech and uh, NFTs and cryptos and stuff like that, there was a lot of money that just went poof. It went away. Yeah, you don't see it a lot. And even with these meme stocks that start to rip really quick or even on the options trades, not a lot of retail activity. So you get the feeling that retail investors, individual investors, hands in the pockets for right now. Caleb, always good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Caleb Silver, Investopedia. Up next, Final Trades. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Yeah, emerging markets. I like Katie's EWZ. I like EWW in Mexico, which is Karen's EWW. Katie, great to have you here. I'm going to revisit Microsoft. I'll join the retail camp. It looks like a big cup and handle formation breaking out as we speak. Dan? Yeah, QQQ. This is the spot. uh, Puts in December. Dollar cheap, handball cheap. Guy? Love Justin Herbert. Also like GDX, Melms. Thank you for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. 
CEOs are in the business of making decisions, and it's the outcome of those decisions that define their success. Hi, I'm Sam Reese, CEO of Vistage. For more than 65 years, we've engaged with more than 100,000 executives on this twisting leadership journey that we call a life of climb. Join me on a Life of Climb podcast to hear firsthand stories from CEOs about the challenges they've overcome and the lessons they've learned along the way. Listen to a Life of Climb wherever you get your podcasts or at vistage.com slash podcast.